Hi, this is Farah Fight, one of the co-hosts of Is It Legal Too? As a compassionate caution, we wanted to let you know that some of the cases discussed in this episode involve sexual assault and violence. Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is It Legal Too? A regular look at the legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Today, we're going to talk about people who are wrongfully convicted of a crime and spend months or years or decades in prison before they're exonerated and freed. The organization Prison Fellowship says condemning the innocent makes a mockery of justice, robbing men and women of dignity, relationships, time, opportunity, and freedom. Wrongful convictions also endanger the public because locking up an innocent person means the real culprit walks free. The organization keeps a running tally of such cases and recently reported since 1989, the United States has used DNA testing to exonerate 225 innocent people after they have spent years in captivity. And that's only DNA. Other cases have been resolved in other ways. A check of records in Missouri shows 10 cases in the last 50 years of inmates freed after it was determined they had been wrongly convicted. Five of those inmates were in prison for 20 years or more, and one, Kevin Strickland, spent more than 42 years in prison. Today, we might throw a lot of names around, but we're going to focus on two of the most recent cases, Lamont Campbell, who spent more than seven years in prison, and Lamar Johnson, who was in prison for 28 years. We're going to be talking with Charlie Weiss, whose 40-year career has been highlighted by his work in business and complex litigation and by his pro bono work, that's free work. The American College of Trial Lawyers have named him a Distinguished Pro Bono Fellow. Among the other honors on his arm's length list of recognitions is his Distinguished Service Award from the Legal Services of Eastern Missouri and his service as president of the Missouri Bar and of Legal Aid of Missouri Statewide. He's with the St. Louis law firm of Brian Cave. In 2022, he and partner Jonathan Potts won freedom for Lamar Johnson, who had done 28 years for a murder he did not commit. And that seems to be a good place to start our discussion today. Welcome to our show, Charlie. Thank you. Tell us the story about Lamar Johnson, how he got convicted despite having an alibi and there being no physical evidence against him, and how you and Jonathan Potts got involved in this case all those years later. Sure. Lamar Johnson was one of the most interesting cases that we worked on because I thought with the evidence that he had accumulated while he was in prison, he should have been out a long, long time ago. But it's awful difficult once a person has been convicted by a jury and affirmed on appeal to vacate or reverse that conviction for good reason. You want some finality, particularly in the criminal area. But in his case, he was convicted of murder about the age of 20, went into prison. He had been in prison for about 29 years before he was declared innocent and released from prison. Uh, We got involved in 2019 when the St. Louis City prosecutor, Kim Gardner at the time, filed a motion for a new trial for Lamar Johnson. She had a conviction integrity unit she had begun. They had investigated, and they had concluded that his conviction was wrongful and he was innocent. Was that the first time a prosecutor had attempted something like that? As far as we know, it was. And so the the circuit court in St. Louis dismissed the case because a motion for a new trial under the rule had to be brought within 30 days from the conviction or judgment. And now he's been in prison for over 20 years. So the case was dismissed. It ultimately went up to the Missouri Supreme Court. We were initially brought in when she had filed that motion by a a group of prosecuting attorneys around the country. I think there were 25 prosecuting attorneys around the country that hired us to to help support the reversal of the conviction. And we we filed some briefs in the case 
but ultimately went up to the Missouri Supreme Court. The Missouri Supreme Court affirmed the dismissal. But in its opinion, it said the solution here was a legislative solution. There is no rule, there is no statute allows a prosecuting attorney to file a motion for new trial, particularly as long, uh, long after the conviction. So we and a couple of other uh, interested persons in St. Louis and elsewhere helped draft a new law, uh, which allowed a prosecuting attorney in Missouri to file a motion to vacate a conviction if he or she had clear and convincing evidence that the person was actually innocent or had been wrongfully convicted because of a constitutional violation. That statute passed and it became in effect, it went into effect at the end of August 1920, or 2021. First case filed under that was filed by uh, Bob Hoffman and others in our Kansas City office, Brian K. Sanders, and that was a Strickland case. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, uh, uh, the, the, the court declared Strickland innocent and he was released. Johnson case now is still around, uh, has been dismissed, but Midwest Innocence Project and others have been representing him and got interested again in refiling that case. And we were asked to get involved, uh, and uh, Kim Gardner, the prosecuting attorney, appointed Jonathan Potts and myself as special assistant prosecuting attorneys for the sole purpose of investigating the Lamar Johnson case and prosecuting it, uh, prosecuting the motion or representing the, the prosecuting attorney in connection with the motion if we felt that he was actually innocent. We went up, I visited with, with Lamar Johnson, I looked at all the, all the information that existed and was convinced that he was innocent. We don't take these cases unless we're absolutely convinced in our own minds that the person's innocent because it takes too much energy and too much time to get these things reversed. These cases go on for years before you finally find a court that's interested in the case that will really look at it, look at the evidence and decide the motion. But we were convinced, so we agreed to do it. And we filed the motion and had a week-long evidentiary hearing in December 2022. I followed that case in the headlines and articles that were coming out about it. And it struck me that since the prosecutor is leading the case and you as special prosecutor, is there another side to this that's represented sure. in these hearings? And, and who, who plays that role? So the statute uh, provides that the attorney general can enter his or her appearance in the case and, and, uh, and, and be involved in the evidentiary hearing. And in this case, the attorney general, in both the Strickland case and the Lamar Johnson case, the attorney general of Missouri uh, uh, entered their appearance and basically served as the opposing attorney in the case. So they opposed uh, Johnson's release. They were very uh, vigorous in their opposition to the brief, to the to the release. Uh, but when we saw this case, we had confessions, sworn confessions, from the two actually killers, and both of them said they did it. We also had, uh, we also uh, the the one of those persons had died, the other was in prison for uh, from another murder. We went down and talked to him. And he confessed. He said, I did it. I, I'm sorry I got Lamar Johnson involved. There was one eyewitness in the case. The eyewitness from the very beginning, the eyewitness testimony from the very beginning was very suspect. The guy should have never been put on the stand. But he retracted his identification and said, I'm, I was mistaken. I should never have identified Lamar Johnson for this murder. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, it's, it's weighed on me for 20 years. Uh, I need to do what's right. He had gone to prison for another crime, and he has been out by now. 
but so so we had we called uh, uh, in in the evidentiary hearing we actually called the living witness who had actually committed the murder who's now in prison came out of prison and testified uh, in person at trial. We put the identif- we put the um, the witness who supposedly identified Lamar Johnson as the perpetrator on the stand. Very compelling testimony. Um, after he te- his testimony, the judge called us back in his chambers. And he looked at the attorney general's uh, lawyer and said, you know, after hearing the testimony of Mr. Elking, the eyewitness, you know, if Mr. Weiss wanted to file a motion for a directed verdict, I may grant that. It's very dramatic. Mm. So anyway, you don't file a motion for a directed verdict in a non-jury case. But uh, so, we, um, so we went back and, re- and tried the case for the rest of the week. It was a, it was a week-long trial. I had thought, as I said in the beginning, I had thought, how could Lamar Johnson still be in prison when you had the two actual perpetrators confessing under oath that they did it and he had nothing to do with it? They, uh, the other thing is one of the perpetrators, one of the killers who, who, had been, who was deceased at the time of our trial, had written letters to Lamar Johnson in prison, not in prison, in jail. They were both waiting trial. Uh, in St. Louis, and the letter said from the actual killer, Lamar, I'm sorry I got you into this. I know you didn't have anything to do with it, but you know how it is. You do not squeal on me. You do not say anything about it, but, uh, you know, I'm sorry I got you into this. He wrote four letters like that within a month after the, the arrest of Lamar Johnson. And I'm thinking, how could this, how could the law and the prosecutors allow somebody to still be in jail with all this evidence? But in the past, the Missouri Attorney General, this is our fifth case, our fifth innocence case since 2009. In each and every case, the Attorney General vigorously defended and opposed the release of anybody who uh, filed a motion to determine that, that, that uh, contended they were innocent. It was just automatic. And so that is one of the issues that we have. And I hope, they, I hope the Attorney General changes their mind and really looks at these things. I just read a story in the Post-Dispatch this morning where there's a case in Kansas City where the Missouri Attorney General came forward this this week and said, we don't oppose a hearing. We think that, that there is a possibility that this person is innocent, which I find is, is sort of really remarkable and it's a good a great thing. When the Attorney General intervened yes, and you saw what their arguments were going to be, yeah. did you feel they had any significant points to make in their arguments at all? Bob, I did not. Uh, Their defense was that you couldn't believe any of the witnesses. They were not credible, neither the eyewitness nor the two Mm -hmm. people who actually confessed to the crime. Their testimony was not credible, and that was their defense, basically. Is that the same testimony that convicted Lamar Johnson, though? Lamar Johnson was convicted because of the eyewitness primarily. The other witness that was, I think, was very instrumental in convicting him was a jailhouse snitch. When Lamar was arrested and put in jail, there was another prisoner in the same cell block, not in the same cell, that came forward to the jail and said he had some information that he wanted to talk to a jailer. And he told the jailer that he had information that he heard these prisoners a few cells down talking about the murder of the woman in St. Louis and the white guy who identified him. The victim was black. The two killers were black, but the eyewitness was white. He had been sitting on the front porch talking to the victim when these two assailants came up beside the house, went up to the porch where the victim was sitting and shot him. The eyewitness was sitting on the front porch right there. 
the two assailants were dressed in ninja-type uniforms, black mask, all black clothing, so you couldn't see their faces at all. Anyway, so it was a strange case. It should have been released a long, long time ago. Is too much credence given to jailhouse snitches? I think so, Bob. I really do. I think is one of the four or five or six reasons why people are wrongfully convicted. And this jailhouse snitch, he had been convicted in Kansas City of a crime a couple of years ago and was in jail there. And the same thing happened while he was in jail there. He approached the jailhouse guard and said he had information about his cellmate confessing to a homicide. That was not disclosed to the defense in this case. The other thing that wasn't disclosed to the defense in this case was that Elking, from the very beginning when the police had identified him as the person who might have witnessed the crime, he denied that he could see the uh, killers because they were all dressed in black. He said, I just can't do it. I don't know him. I, you know. They convinced him that they knew who it was, that he should testify, and ultimately he did. But the, he said, I'm afraid that if I testify, they will come get me. You know, I just, I'm, I'm recently married. I've got a young child. And the police told him that if he agreed to testify, they would move him out of his house, get him a new apartment, pay for the apartment, pay for his utilities, pay for his rent, and that's what they did. That was not disclosed to the defense either. That was something Lamar himself found out after he'd been in jail. When you talk about this lack of disclosure, is that a violation of someone's rights? Sure. That's what we call the Brady violation. It came out of a Brady is a, was a Supreme Court case that says the prosecution has a constitutional duty to turn over to the defense any what we call exculpatory information, anything that would assist the defense in the case. So what's Lamar Johnson doing now? Lamar is uh, out of prison. He walked out after we concluded the trial, mm -hmm. the last Friday of that midweek in December. The judge said he was going to take it under submission and would write an opinion. He said he would also announce the date when his opinion would would be concluded. He was going to do it in open court, and he said he was going to have a stack of his opinions there that anybody could come and get and read. But while he was in court, anybody that was there, he would summarize what he decided. So it was announced he was going to announce his decision on Valentine's Day this year. So we all went. Uh, Lamar had been in jail in St. Louis. They allowed him to stay in St. Louis until the judge actually decided the opinion. The courtroom was filled. The judge came out on the bench, and he started summarizing his opinion. And basically, he got to a point, and he said, now, you know, I, these are all these difficult cases. You know, I worked very hard on this. He said, you know, I had I was home for a you know, month and a half, and I had a, my dining room table. Everything spread around my dining room table. But my wife couldn't even eat on the table. And But ultimately, here's my opinion, and anybody can come up and get it. But he said, I conclude that he is actually innocent. He was also wrongfully convicted because of a constitutional violation by not turning over exculpatory information. So that same day, Lamar walked out of court free man. He had been staying with Ricky Kidd, a fellow inmate in Jefferson City, who had previously been yeah. pardoned by the governor because he was innocent also. So he and Ricky then lived together for a while. They came back. He's now living in St. Louis. I'm not sure. After his conviction, however, now he walked out of prison without anything. He had no property. He had clothes on his back, basically. So the Midwest Innocence Project began a GoFundMe page for him. And the last I saw, there was about $600,000 in it. Lamar came down weeks ago and visited with us. We had lunch with him in St. Louis. And in the meantime, he had gotten his driver's license. because He hadn't driven for tw almost 29 years. <laughs> Bought a car with some of the money that he had. And he had been doing some work over the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law School. 
I think he's doing well. He's happy. He's spoken to a, on a few events. He went out to, I believe, in Phoenix and attended the National Convention for the, I think it's called the Innocence Convention, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But it consists of people who've been exonerated and the attorneys and other people that are involved in this. I got a call about a couple months ago from the American College of Trial Lawyers, which is a national organization. And they had heard about Lamar Johnson and the case we're talking about. And their, their annual meeting is in San Diego in September. And they've invited Lamar to come out and speak at a CL, hour and a half CLE program. They're planning mm-hmm. to speak on the CLE program at their annual meeting in San Diego. And I think he's happy and, and looking forward to that. In his 28 years, had he accumulated any higher education or anything like that or come out with any kind of, of, of job training that would enable him to yeah, be employed? I think he completed his high school diploma. Mm-hmm. He also learned how to write Braille and also how to write large letters so they could be read by people who are deaf. So I think he had that skill. I'm not sure it's a remarkable skill outside, but that was what he was doing in prison. He was a, I think he was sort of a model prisoner. He never got in trouble because that's one thing we really looked for. I was going to say in the interviews I saw with him, it seemed that he had a very positive rapport um, and that, you know, in spite yeah. of decades behind bars for something that he didn't commit, he he remained positive. Is is that something that you sensed from him as well? Yes. He's a remarkable young man, not so young anymore. Well-spoken, very articulate, soft-spoken, even-keeled. I was just one of the type of person you'd want to do business with or have a drink with, you know. But he's just... Uh, to have somebody like I think of somebody like that who's been in prison from the time he was 20 until he's almost 50, and to have that kind of attitude, he, he's an he's an educated man. He's very intelligent. His handwriting I've never seen handwriting that good. I can't read my own handwriting, but he looked it looked like he was very very good handwriting. The letters that he wrote in in some of the cases that he filed himself, remarkable. Did he always maintain his innocence? He did, from the very beginning. He maintained his innocence. He volunteered to come down for a lineup when he was asked to, thinking nobody's going to identify me because I didn't have anything to do with it. I think if I went through a posi- something like this, I'd come out pretty bitter. And and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised when I see stories of guys who come yeah. out like this, yeah. and they, they don't seem to be. I agree with you. I think it's human nature to be bitter after something like this, after you're wrongfully convicted. And time after time after time, you've tried to tell people you weren't and to prove people you weren't, and nobody's listening to you. I think human nature is you would be bitter, certainly be upset. But I think Lamar is, a really, as I said, a very smart person. And I think he understood that if he were bitter, that could consume you. And he, he doesn't want that. He, he wants to go on with his life, look forward rather than backward. I know you talked about the GoFundMe campaign that the Innocence Project created for him. In Missouri, I believe that there's a law that allows for restitution to be paid for those who are exonerated through DNA evidence. Correct. Is because there was no DNA evidence in this, even though he was declared actually innocent by the judge, does that mean that there's no restitution? There's no payment for his wrongful conviction? From the state, that's correct. Now, the legislature just passed passed a statute this term providing for compensation for wrongfully convicted persons or innocent, been declared innocent, I believe, is the standard. 
I don't believe the governor signed it yet. I'm not sure. But it would provide about $60,000, $65,000 a year for the person who was wrongfully convicted if that person signed an agreement not to file any kind of civil suit for money. What do you find of those folks you've worked with who are released? What is their biggest challenge when they come out? They have to get acclimated to a whole new world, but what, what is the challenge they face or what are the challenges they face? Yes, the challenges are all different depending on who they are and where they were when they went in. first case we had was the Josh Kieser case. He was 17 years old when he was arrested, spent 16, 17 years in prison. He didn't have a high school education. He was living on the streets. His father lived up in Kankakee, Illinois. His mom lived down in Cape Girardeau. Mm-hmm. He's another smart, very smart individual, one of the smartest persons that we've, we've represented in these innocence cases. And uh, after getting out of prison, the first thing he did, the people who were supporting him in Columbia, who was a minister's wife in Columbia, helped him get a job doing painting. But after a while, we were able to file a civil suit and get a a valuable judgment for him, and he stopped painting, but he reads a lot. Uh, he's very interested in helping other people in these innocence cases, and he's motivated. So that's his and a very level-headed person. The next guy that we represented uh, was George Allen, who had mental issues, a lot of mental issues. Mm-hmm. And after he got out of prison, again, we worked with Barry Sheck of the Innocence Project in New York on his case. We were co-counsel, and we filed a civil suit. While a civil suit was pending, he passed away mm. in his mom's house. Within two years after getting out of prison, we ultimately resolved that case and the money went to his family and mother and so forth. Then there was the David Robinson case. Uh, he uh, was, again, that happened down in Sykeston, Missouri. Again, he had no education or anything like that. Uh, it was a civil case. He, he obtained a judgment, some money, and so he was okay. Donald Nash was the next one, and that case... Mr. Nash had been in prison for a number of years for a murder he did not commit. Absolutely. One of the nicest guys I've ever met. The Supreme Court actually, in 2020 declared him innocent and uh, his, his conviction was vacated. We filed a lawsuit uh, in, pending in federal court in St. Louis. That lawsuit is still pending. And unfortunately, Mr. Nash also passed away. There's a tragedy. He spent uh, 15, 16 years of his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. He was married. His wife stayed with him the whole time. Was that the case out of Salem, Missouri? It was. Yes, it was. And then Lamar Johnson's case was the next one we had. So they've all been interesting. They've all, everyone had their own challenges, but most of them come out not educated. They don't have a, most of them don't have a college or a high school education, much less a college education. They don't have a trade. Uh, So they have to start their lives all over again. And the only thing that saves a lot of these people is to get some financial support. I saw some numbers the other day that says there's uh, something like 44,500 people in federal or state prisons here in Missouri and uh, in local jails. I suspect there's an awful lot of those people who want to be released because they think they're innocent. How yeah, do you, and and I, so I'm yeah, sure you, you yeah, get a lot of these yeah. documents. How do you decide which ones yeah. to take? Well, let me preface that by saying... No one really has a good handle on how many people in prison are actually innocent, mm-hmm. but I've seen stats from 2 to 5% of the people in prison are innocent or have been wrongly convicted. There's about 2.4 million people in this country, either in jail or in prison, and another 5 million out on probation or parole. So there's a large percentage of our population 
And I've got a stack of papers on my desk about a foot high from prisoners who content, are seeking your assistance. Who believe they're innocent and want some help. As I said in the beginning, before we take on these cases, we do our own investigations as much as we can. I almost have to talk to the person before we agree to take these cases, and we have to be absolutely convinced to the best of our ability that the person's innocent before we agree to take on something like this. How do you do that? Because a lot of the cases are so old that people yeah. have died yeah. and evidence has been lost or something or things like that. How do you figure this out? Well, we, we don't have investigators at our law firm working for us. Mm -hmm. A lot of the material comes from the actual person who contacts us. They usually have assembled a lot of the evidence themselves while they've been in prison through requests for freedom of information and things like that. Some of it comes from the Midwest Innocence Project, who already has investigated the case and has assembled a lot of information. It's very difficult, as I said, if you don't have any information and there's nothing that really stands out that the person's innocent other than the person saying, I'm innocent, those cases we usually don't take on. You mentioned um, that, I don't know if you said his name, Judge Mason, he's actually been a past mm -hmm. guest here yes. on our podcast. Uh, I believe he's the judge in the Lamar Johnson case. Judge David Mason was the judge in the Lamar Johnson case. You said that he had his paperwork strewn across the dining room table, writing the opinion. How do you convince a judge that, of actual yeah. innocence? Is, we know what it takes to convict someone yeah. beyond the burden of proof, but what what are the things that you're looking for to convince a judge of actual innocence? Good question, and we talk about this a lot, and I think it's a rather simple simple answer, and that is, in any case, whether it's an innocence case or a civil case or other criminal case, you have to make sure that the judge believes that you are credible and your witness is credible. So I think it's uh, to, the most important thing is to establish at a trial or an evidentiary hearing that your case is credible. The witnesses are credible, the innocent person is credible, and the lawyers are credible. That's the most important thing. You do not come into court and make arguments that you can't prove or that there's no evidence of. And people do that. They wing it. But, but preparation, getting all the evidence together, making sure the evidence is credible and compelling, like any case, is what convinces the judge to decide in your favor. How difficult is it to deal with people who take back their testimony from many years ago and say, yeah, recall, I lied or I yeah, was wrong? Recall recantations. Yeah. That's correct. So in this case, Bob, we had a Greg Elking, the person I was talking about, who was the eyewitness. He had told several different stories at times. At times he would say, I was mistaken, did recognize him, didn't recognize him. So that was a, that was a real challenge, not only for us, but for, for the case that he had testified differently several times. At the end, when he testified at the hearing before Judge Mason, he was very credible. I think everybody in that courtroom believed he was credible. He came across as very sorry that he had gotten Lamar Johnson convicted in, in essence. And Lamar Johnson spent all those years, great, you know, in his 20s, 30s, and 40s in jail. He was a key witness in the case, and it turns out is when he testified, he was really, really credible. Attorney General tried to cross-examine him vigorously, but it didn't work. Yeah. How about new new evidence? Comes. How hard is that to number one prove yeah. and yeah. number one legitimize? Yeah. Get into trial. Yeah. 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 The new evidence is what you actually need usually to turn these cases around. If you don't have new evidence, evidence that was not 
introduced at trial because that evidence, remember, was before the jury and it was also evidence that was there on appeal. So all that evidence was before the court and based upon the evidence, they convicted a person. So you have to have new evidence. You have to have a recantation, some proof that was a coerced confession, anything like that. Sometimes a witness that wasn't available at trial comes forward and say, you know, now I, I read in the newspaper that this guy or this woman killed somebody. I was with him or I, you know, I, I was a witness of the crime. Police didn't contact me. and It wasn't them. You have those cases. That's what you're really looking for, the kind of new evidence that wasn't available at the trial. In the George Allen case, for example, in that case, he was convicted solely on a coerced confession, no other evidence. But this was a a case that engendered a lot of publicity in St. Louis. The victim was a well-known court reporter, a sonographer who reported on cases in the court. Everybody in the court around the court knew her. She was found in her apartment one day. She had been killed and sexually assaulted. The investigators found, uh, you know, blood samples and fingerprint samples. The blood samples were of a type that were not compatible with George Allen. He couldn't have been some of the same blood. Fingerprints were not George Allen. That was not disclosed to the to the defense. Once people started looking into the case, they found this evidence. The evidence of the blood type was still in the prosecution's files. The evidence of the fingerprints was still in the prosecution's files. That was new evidence. It wasn't new evidence because it existed at the time, but wasn't presented at the trial. But it was discovered after the trial. That led to his his release. Is there a duty that evidence be maintained or kept indefinitely? Sure. Yeah, I think there's in, in these cases, and, 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 and most times the evidence is kept for years and years and years. So thank God that, that happens, yeah. Coerced, uh, coerced confessions. That's something we hear from time to time or we yeah. see on the top shows on television. Right. Does that happen very often and how do you prove it? It's hard to prove, obviously. Uh, I think it does happen. And a lot of times it happens because a person is, like George Allen's case, had mental issues, wasn't that smart. They put words in his mouth. Mm-hmm. They promise the, the person, yeah, just tell me what happened and we'll let you go home. Those are the kind of things that happen. They are hard to prove. Not sure how often they happen, but they do happen. So, the, the, you know, some of the things that lead to wrongful convictions we talked about is, is uh, mistaken eyewitness identification is probably the most frequent cause of of wrongful convictions, coerced confessions, what we call junk science, you know, bite marks, uh, hair samples, and all that kind of stuff, which has been proven that's not really that scientifically reliable. Jailhouse snitches is another one. Those are, and then, obviously, prosecutorial or police misconduct. Is anybody held liable because of that kind of misconduct? Is there any way to go back to the police or the prosecutor and and seek a redress of some kind from them? Sure. Good question. So let's start with prosecutors. Prosecutors have absolute immunity. You can't sue them or recover anything against them, even if they put a lying witness on the stand or if they misrepresent the facts to a jury. They have absolute immunity. However, investigative people, police people uh, like that, they have what we call qualified immunity. They're immune unless they did something intentionally, fraudulently, or recklessly. And, and when we file these civil suits, that's generally whom we bring the cases against. Why are prosecutors protected like that? I'm not sure. <laughs> and, and there's been statutes from time to time that would uh, limit that kind of immunity, but almost universally around the country. I'm not sure about every state, but certainly in Missouri it is. I wanted to go back to the idea of 
you talked about your role being appointed as a special prosecutor under the law that was passed, I believe, in 2020. And Kevin Strickland and Lamar Johnson were found actually innocent by the judges in those cases. I've heard a lot and read a lot about other high-profile wrongful conviction cases where they're not actually found actually innocent. They're just said that you're granted a retrial, I believe, and then the prosecutor chooses not to pursue that. What kind of limbo is that? (laughs) We have an issue here in the state of Missouri with respect to that issue. It's frustrating all of us who are any attorney, whether we're doing this or not, because here's the issue. Back in the uh, early 2000s, Judge Richard Teitelman, who was on the US, Missouri Supreme Court, wrote a decision called Amrine, and it had to do with a, a killing in prison. Yeah. Amrine was convicted, and throughout several post, what we call post-conviction hearings, it was it continued to be affirmed, affirmed, affirmed. Finally, it got to the Missouri Supreme Court, and Rick Teitelman wrote the decision. He said, the evidence here shows that this person was actually innocent of the crime. Amrine at the time was on death row when Rick wrote that opinion. So you would think that that precedent, right, so mm-hmm. of this Missouri Supreme Court decision, five, six, seven years ago, the Missouri Court of Appeals in Kansas City, the Western District Court of Appeals, wrote a decision in the Lincoln case. That Lincoln was not on death row, and they raised the same issue. The argument was that he was innocent, actually innocent, and they decided that there's no law in Missouri and no precedent in Missouri that uh, allows a person, if he can prove that he's actually innocent, to be released from prison unless he's on death row. That case is still law. We have asked, in several of our cases, we've asked the Supreme Court to clarify it, and they've kept hands off so far. It makes no sense, and we've argued it. Whether, whether you're going to be put to death by an injection or an electric chair two years from now or five years from now or whatever, or whether you're going to die in prison 30 years from now, what difference does it make if you're actually innocent? You should be released. We scratch our heads as to why that's still uh, a law and the courts haven't overturned it or that, clarified that, it. That case hasn't gone up to the state Supreme Court from the appeals court? That, that particular case did not, no. How is the decision made not to do that? So sometimes the case is not actually appealed and the court can take a case whether they not everything is automatically it can be appealed to the Supreme Court. For whatever reason, the Supreme Court did not decide the Lincoln case. And so it still exists. And, you know, the attorney general raises it all the time. So that's the precedent yeah. that everyone follows. So what follows. happens in these, a lot of the cases that we've handled, the Keezer case was an actual innocence case. And the judge in Jefferson City decided that he was actually innocent. And he was released. However, the order was that it goes back to the prosecuting attorney and that prosecuting attorney then determines whether or not they want to retry him. And that has been the case, all four cases we've had other than Lamar Johnson. Well, Lamar Johnson was brought under the, the new statute. The other cases were not brought under the new statute. But in each case, the court always determined he was wrongfully convicted. We're going to reverse the conviction. We're sending it back to the local prosecutor to see whether that prosecutor wants to proceed to trial or not. In all the cases except the Donald Nash case, the prosecutor said, we're not going to retry the case, period. In the Donald Nash case in Salem, the prosecutor said, we're going to retry it. So a week before trial, we got a call from the attorney general's office of the prosecutor who is actually going to try the case with us. And he said, Charlie, he said, we have had the DNA retested involved in that case, and we can no longer go forward with the trial. We can no longer say that DNA belongs to Mr. Nash, and we're going to dismiss the case. Was Mr. Nash allowed to be free while awaiting that trial? He or- was not. They actually 
took him, moved him from Potosi down to the jail in Salem. The Supreme Court, and this was right when the COVID hit. COVID was going on. A lot of prisoners were getting COVID mm -hmm. and getting very ill or dying. So we asked the Supreme Court to order them to immediately have a hearing for bond. And we filed that motion. By the end of the day, the Supreme Court had entered the motion, appointed a special judge. The next day, Saturday, he convened a telephone conversation for bail hearing, and Mr. Nash was released on bond. Been free ever since until he passed away this past. So you get to the Supreme Court. They take these cases seriously. They try to do the right thing, and I think they do. Is DNA the magic bullet? Can be. So, well, let's take a, a typical rape case. If you can get DNA from the rape case, and DNA and under technology today, you can identify that to a person. So somebody is arrested for the rape. Turns out it's not his DNA. That's kind of a magic bullet, seems to me. Now, I've seen some cases where on appeal, the attorney general or the prosecutor doesn't want to, re to introduce DNA that has become an issue since the original conviction. Why would they do that? I don't know why they would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. Well, uh, unless the DNA didn't match. Yeah. There can always be questions about the way the DNA has been preserved over the years, uh, the way it has been collected. So there's technical issues involved sometimes, too. Is an Alford plea an option for those who are maybe in that limbo where they've been found wrongfully convicted, but they're facing a retrial? Sure. I've I, I had no experience with that, but certainly that's an option. And that essentially means that you're saying the evidence is there yeah. to prove to a, a jury, but you maybe want to plead guilty for yeah. time previous served. Yeah. The only case I had like that was not an innocence case, but when I first came with Brian Cave, after being there about three years or so, this was before Missouri had a public defender system. So if you were an indigent, you were convicted of a crime and couldn't pay for a lawyer, the court would appoint a lawyer for it. And they would appoint any lawyer. You'd go down the court rolls and your name came up, you were appointed, whether you were a criminal lawyer or not. And you had to represent that person pro bono. So I had been appointed, this person had been convicted already and was in prison. For He and his four of his buddies went out drinking one night, came home, he held a pistol to his wife's head, and the four guys took turns raping his wife. Terrible crime. During the trial, he shot himself and spent 21 days in the hospital. The lawyer representing him asked for a mistrial. The judge says, no, I'm going to decide that he voluntarily decided he wasn't going to come to trial. He absented himself from trial, and it was a voluntary ab absence, and uh, we'll go ahead with the trial. They went ahead and trial convicted him. He sentenced to life in prison without parole. So I was appointed on a habeas case. He had filed a habeas case. He had no lawyer. So they appointed me to represent him, which we did. We had a evidentiary hearing in court in St. Louis. I had filed a motion for a habeas corpus to release him for an evidentiary hearing. We had an evidentiary hearing. A year goes by after the evidentiary hearing. The judge is still deciding it. I remember walking into the I mean, I'm going to go up and talk to the judge. Is this guy still in prison? So I walked into his chambers, and, and he said, good morning. I knew him. And he said, I said, judge, I said, you know, we've got this case pending. The guy's been in jail for now. We just need a decision one way or the other so we can go ahead and proceed. He said, Charlie, I'm agonizing over this. It's giving me fits. It's right here on my desk. I'm still working on it, but I'll get to it. And uh, I, I said, judge, I'm going to have to file a mandamus or something, you know. So nothing came. I filed a man, writ of mandamus with the Supreme Court to require him to really rule the next day against me. <laughs> so now we go to the Court of Appeals, like you say, and they denied it. And I went up to the Missouri Supreme Court. They denied it. From there, I could go. I asked the Missouri, U.S. Supreme Court to take certiorari, 
which they did. So they took the case, and they reversed it unanimously. It's called Drope versus State of Missouri. The principle is, what elements do you have to show to prove that somebody is mentally unfit to stand trial and should have been given a mental examination? I, sh I left out the fact that before the case actually was tried, his attorney filed a motion to have him mentally examined. The state comes in and files a motion by responding, we don't contest it. But it laid there and was never ruled upon. On a weekend prior to the time the case was set to trial, his father-in-law, this, this guy's out on, out on bail, his father-in-law runs into him and says, I'll see you in court on Monday. He said, what do you mean you're going to see me in court on Monday? He said, the trial starts. He said, I haven't heard from my attorney. He said, so he shows up in court on Monday. The judge calls his case out. He said, judge, here I am. He said, where's your attorney? He said, I don't know. So the judge actually sent his bail about. They found he was out in the county of St. Louis arguing another case, brought him back. They started trial that day. So this case, State of Missouri versus Drope, is a case where the Supreme Court laid out various uh, elements as to what you have to show for a mental examination. The long story short, but you were getting, so what happens with your pre-deal? So once it was reversed, there was a big editorial in the, in the Globe Democrat about the case. These egghead judges, they called the Supreme Court, deciding this crazy case of leading this, letting this guy go who had his buddies rape his wife. Brendan Ryan was the prosecuting attorney at that time, really, and later a judge in St. Louis. So I went up and I said, Brendan, I said, you know, we're going to move to get this guy out on bail. He's been in prison for six years now. And, and he said, I won't oppose it, Charlie. He said, but we're going to try this guy. We're going to put him away for life. I'll promise you that. I said, Okay. So we went up to have a bail hearing, and I'll be damned if the state – I'll be darned if the state didn't <laughs> oppose it, and they did. Anyway, the judge released him on bond for $5,000. The mother put up at her house for the bond, and he walked out a free man. So that – well, he didn't walk out as a free man. What happened then after he walked out on bond, but then, then the state came to us, and we actually pleaded him guilty for the time he'd served in prison. So that was – they were going to retry him put him in prison for life, and we worked out a deal where they were allowed. He'd already been in jail for six years by now. So he walked out a free man. How often is uh, inadequate counsel raised in a case like this? It is raised quite often. In the Nash case, we raised inadequate counsel, and the judge found inadequate counsel. Was that a public defender or just a... It, it was a private attorney, okay. yeah. Do public defenders get involved in these kinds of cases very much, That and then you go back to the inadequacies of the public defender program in Missouri and, and question that in relation to how the case was handled? Yeah. The ineffective assistance of counsel of a public defender has not really been an issue in any of the five cases we've handled. handled. I should say this. There are a lot of good public defenders. They really are good trial lawyers and good people. Some of the issues with the public defender system is they're overworked and they don't, you know, they don't have enough time and resources to really, mm -hmm. but they're really, most of them do a great job. I know that the legislature in recent years has increased funding for both staffing and resources um, for the first time in many years they for have, public defenders. I thought it was interesting when you pointed out that private counsel, even if you didn't have criminal law experience, was appointed. I'm guessing that was following the U.S. Supreme Court decision of, I think it was Gideon v. Wainwright. Yes. Um, and just might know a historical fact that Bob doesn't. You probably do. But Gideon was originally from Missouri yes. and is buried uh, in Hannibal. Yes, so. uh, I know that. I know the case was out of Florida, but... Uh, yeah, yeah no. I, I'm just never going to beat him on any <laughs> on any history yeah. factoid. Well, it's so important to have a good lawyer. You can do an adequate job and not a great job and the person's still in jail. Most of these courses, most of these cases, these innocent cases, after somebody's been in jail for 15, 20, 30, 40 years, you know... It's a lot of work to, to find the evidence and to convince the court to reverse the conviction. 
This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legalese. 20 years ago, a Missouri case on wrongful convictions jumped off the front page of the New York Times with a question that came up during an argument in the Missouri Supreme Court. Joe Amrine, a Missouri inmate, was seeking to overturn a conviction for murder, which he received for allegedly killing a fellow inmate while in prison for another crime. Amrine received a fair trial, but later the inmates who testified against him recanted their testimony. A correctional officer testified that Amrine did not commit the crime, but the jury believed the three inmates who testified against Amrine. The judges asked a serious question. Even if an inmate can prove he was actually innocent, should the state be allowed to execute him if he received a fair trial? For the horrified readers of the New York Times, the state's answer was simply yes. The Constitution, the state argued, guarantees procedural fairness. If the trial is fair, that is, that relevant evidence was allowed, irrelevant evidence was excluded, and the witnesses and documentary evidence support a finding of guilt, and the jury found the defendant guilty, that's all the legal system needs to justify any criminal sentence, including the death penalty. By a four to three margin, the Missouri Supreme Court disagreed and granted Amrine a new trial. Because the state lacked evidence for a conviction, he was freed. And last I heard, he was spending a good deal of time speaking against the death penalty. Despite the state's contention in Amrine's case, which probably at that time was a fair statement of the law, we have in the last two to three decades produced a substantial number of cases highly influenced by scientific evidence where courts are willing to consider claims of actual innocence based on DNA evidence. Prior to these scientific developments, contested trials mostly involve a witness or witnesses testifying and subject to cross-examination and the jury is left solely with the unenviable task of determining whether the witnesses testified accurately and truthfully. Do juries always get it right? Of course not. The state has an interest in finality, that is, the notion that legal and factual disputes in a given case need to be put to rest when a trial or plea is heard and the appeals are exhausted. The only avenue for correcting bad results traditionally has been for the convicted person to ask the governor for clemency or for a pardon. The odds against the convict are long. The governor's power to override criminal conviction is in the state constitution, but governors use it sparingly. Like most of us, governors trust juries unless subsequently developed evidence makes it clear that a jury got it wrong. How many innocent persons are convicted of crimes they did not commit? It's hard to know. Death penalty cases are particularly troubling because at the end, the state takes a human life. Early in my time as a Supreme Court judge in Missouri, we had a case, and it turned out to be a rare case indeed, where I was fairly sure that the defendant, convicted of a double murder in rural Missouri, was not involved. The accused was an itinerant worker named Danny Wolf, who was charged with killing a couple in their 70s in a robbery in Camden County. Wolf was convicted on the testimony of a woman who was granted immunity in order to testify against him. The male victim who was in the driver's seat of the car in which he was shot, was killed by a gun fired in the back seat of the car. The other victim, the wife, was stabbed to death in the victim's house. 
Despite the bloody nature of both killings, there was not a drop of blood on the wolf's clothing, which was recovered from his apartment. In addition, the murders were said to have been committed on a Thursday morning. The bodies were discovered on Sunday, three days later. A witness who was not involved in the crime testified that he had had coffee with the male victim on Thursday morning after the victim supposedly had been murdered. A St. Louis Post-Dispatch editorial about the case years later was titled, Coffee with a Dead Man. The jury believed the woman who testified that she saw the defendant commit the murders, though there was no physical evidence supporting the verdict, and there was some evidence the witness was lying. The defendant was poorly represented, but in the end, the court upheld the guilty verdict and the sentence of death. I dissented. The vote to uphold the conviction of death sentence was five to two. There was, however, a second chance, a proceeding called a post-conviction motion, where a defendant is allowed to present evidence and argue that he did not receive a fair trial because he did not have adequate representation by his lawyers. In Danny Wolf's case, the post-conviction hearing produced significant evidence that should have been known by the defense lawyers in the original trial, and the Supreme Court of Missouri granted him a new trial. The second trial, where he was represented by a leading defense attorney backed up by a major Kansas City law firm, reached the same result, guilty. But the jury deadlocked on punishment, and the court sentenced Wolf to life in prison without parole. Small consolation for Danny Wolf and those who thought him to be innocent. At least the state didn't kill him. As an aside, I taught a sentencing course at St. Louis University years ago for judges, corrections officials, and law students. One of my students, a woman in her 30s, told me at the beginning of the course that she didn't particularly care whether or not someone was guilty. Let God sort them out, she said. I was happy to hear a few years later that she was working as a public defender. Zealously, I am sure. Public defenders are underappreciated in the efforts they make to avoid the misfortune of convicting the innocent. There are many inmates in prisons who claim to have been innocent, but most were guilty. Danny Wolf has stayed in my memory as a reminder that we lawyers, juries, and judges don't always get it right, and justice is not always done. This is Mike Wolf, constantly grateful to members of my profession who pursue justice for those who are wrongfully convicted. Legalese. I've heard a lot of inmates who spend a lot of their time in the jail library reading law books. Do you very often get inmates who've been reading law books who think they've got a case, and do they usually? <laughs> <laughs> we have had, uh, we've looked, I've looked at a lot of cases, looked at a lot of letters from inmates, and uh, the distinguishing factor in some of these letters, Bob, is that many of them talk about a wrongful conviction because the search warrant was bad or their counsel didn't call a witness or whatever. We do not generally take a case where there's been a, a constitutional violation unless we determine that the person is actually innocent also. We can only do so much. There's so many of these cases. And so you have to find a case that really is somebody's innocent. Then you have the motivation. You have the belief that justice should be done and that person should be, not spend the time in jail. As a human being, as a lawyer, you know, we have to be convinced that we're doing is right and we have to be motivated to do it because there's a lot of satisfaction in getting somebody out of prison who's declared innocent, who's suffered a lot. That's what justice is all about. When somebody is released because of a wrongful conviction, is that record expunged or there is still a record somewhere? Uh, you have to, if, not automatically. You have to go to court to get it expunged. 
And do most of them do that? Some of them do it. The newspaper stories, the publicity is always back, you know. There's probably still a digital trail. Yes, it's still Uh a trail. And that's not ever released. We haven't asked you a basic question, I don't think, unless I forgot it. What got you involved in this kind of work? Why do you do it? So, after graduating from law school, I I took a clerkship for the United States Court of Appeals in St. Louis, Judge Mathis, who was the judge. That's a a six-state circuit, and so we were the only judge in St. Louis. In, In an appeals court, when I clerked for appeals court, there's not a lot of action up there. So we get briefs in, we read the briefs, write opinions. The action was all down the district court where the trials were being held. And so I, I should have really tried for a district clerkship rather than an appellate courtship, even though the appellate courtship is probably better on your record, if that means anything. But I always wanted to be a trial lawyer when I was going to law school, after I got out. And as I said earlier, at the time I went to, and I went to work for Brian Cave then, a year after I got out of uh, the clerkship ended a year, and I went to Brian Cave after that. And I was a young lawyer. Brian Cave at that time was sort of a corporate law firm. We didn't do a lot of litigation. There weren't a lot of trials that our lawyers were doing. I was the 30th lawyer in the firm. Today there's 1,400, but and we only had one office. But I wanted to do trial work. So when I went to Brian Cave, the first thing I did was walk around and talk to each of the partners. And I said, if you get an appointed criminal case, I'll handle it for you. I want to go to court. I want to try the case. So the first two years I was there... I'd had eight appointments. You can say you were popular, weren't you? Eight appointments, and I tried eight criminal cases to a jury. And in that that work, you know, I, I learned that the criminal system is not always fair and not always just, and there are innocent people. And so then the next thing that happened, I was appointed to these, the Supreme Court case I was talking about, Dropey versus State, mm-hmm. and that Supreme Court came down with that decision in 1975. I've not done a lot of criminal work since that time until we got the Josh Kieser case in 2006 on these innocent cases. Once you get a case like that, somehow it gets back to the prison and the other people, and people start approaching you. And that's how we got involved. There's a lot of satisfaction involved in getting someone who is convicted that's innocent out of prison. I mean, that's some of us, that's why we're lawyers, to make sure justice was done. I spent much of my career representing McDonnell Douglas Corporation of all types of cases, government contract cases, airplane crash cases, you name it. So, And that was a lot different. And you get to court, I traveled all over the country on cases, and they were a great client, it was a great company. But I will say that these innocence cases, sometimes you get more satisfaction out of those than winning a big case for a large corporation. How did you convince um, your firm? Because the amount of work that goes into these cases, I'm guessing that some of your time that maybe would have been committed to you know, new clients, paying clients at the firm, was going towards proving the actual innocence of these individuals. How did you get buy-in and support for being able to pursue these and having a partner in Jonathan Potts being able to join you in these cases? Brian Cave has been very good to, about that. Uh, never had an issue in Brian Cave. They are a firm that's committed to pro bono work, have always been committed to pro bono work. So there's no advocacy involved. We identify a case and they give us total support. I know you've spent your career in a large firm, but many Missouri lawyers are solo and small firm lawyers. What is a way that they could contribute in this arena? Do you have ideas on how they could contribute, even though they might not have the same resources? Sure. Well, I think I think there are a number of small practitioners who have done this innocence work and have done it very well. That's a that, that is a lot of investment that they that they're willing to put in because it does take a lot of time, it takes money, and some lawyers do that and 
we should be grateful for that. They can also partner with a firm like ours, like somebody like me. And we do get some offers from people to help with the innocence work. I know we've talked today, you've highlighted some of the the key things that can lead to wrongful convictions. In your experience with these cases and in this area, are there solutions or best practices that you would recommend to either reduce or maybe someday eliminate wrongful convictions? Well, because the justice system is run by human beings and we're all fallible, you're never going to eliminate mistakes and problems. That's just the, the way it is. We can try to do things that will limit as much as possible wrongful convictions but we're never going to, I think, eliminate them altogether. You know, if you've got conscientious prosecutors, conscientious policemen, law enforcement people, and they do what is right, even though they might not get a conviction, I think that would go a long way of helping eliminating or reducing the number of wrongful convictions sometimes. We do a good job in this country in the criminal justice system, and there is a lot of safeguards uh, along the way to try to prevent the conviction of an innocent person, but it's not a perfect system. It will never be perfect. I know as a non-lawyer, I confess I get drawn in all the time to true crime documentaries. I know you said that you were just interviewed for one of these types of shows, and the idea that something like this could happen to someone and it goes on for so long, that's what draws me in. It's their story. Unfortunately, my heart breaks for these scenarios, but for the average citizen... What do you think it is that they should know most about wrongful convictions? Well, I think they should know first that it's a terrible thing. And I think most people do. And the loss of your freedom means everything. You are in in jail. You're not sitting across from your wife or your spouse every day having dinner with them. Somebody else is in control of everything you do. It's a terrible situation. I think people need to understand what a what a hardship it is to be in jail or prison. I tell people, I can't imagine spending a night in jail or prison. I just can't do it. I think it's a terrible thing. And people, and most people realize that, I think. Uh, you have nothing, you have, you, you know, whatever you're going to eat is what somebody's going to put in front of you. They're telling you what to do every every day. Uh, you don't have a lot of freedom. And I think the loss of freedom, if, if people could realize what that means, that's one of the more important things about a wrongful conviction, I think. It strikes me there's a, a really heavy burden. We haven't talked about this. There's a really heavy burden on jurors, yes. especially when we get into a yeah. serious case yeah. like this. Yes. Have you ever talked to very many people who've been jurors in some of these wrongful conviction cases and tried to figure out how they evaluated this in the original case and why they came down with the decision they did? I have not. I've not gone back and tried to interview jurors because the trials have been, you know, the cases we've been handling is mm-hmm. 10, 20 years ago. It's interesting because in the Lamar Johnson case, the Midwest Innocence Project persons went out and interviewed two or three or four jurors. And the local rule in the court is you can't talk to jurors after a trial unless you get permission from the court. And the judge in that case wrote a very critical decision about about basically almost accused them of unethical behavior about going out and interviewing these four or five jurors. I thought that was surprising and wrong, but uh, sometimes, you, at least it happened in that case. That's not the reason I don't interview jurors, but usually it's the, the case is so old that they're either not around, try to find them. is always a difficult thing. But you do have to be careful about talking to jurors. I don't find a rule, a local rule that says you can't talk to a juror after a trial applicable to talking to a jury 
10 or 20 years after a trial. Yeah. But she, she raised that in the case. Well, you could always go to a reporter. I was going to say. Always, I, always go to yeah. ask somebody to do it, yeah, yes. Have the reporter yes. inquire. You can we we see that. those types of interviews quite often. Yeah, in, yeah. no, you can always do that. Media. I was just going to say, thank you for explaining what you believe is most important for the average person to take away from this conversation when it comes to wrongful conviction. Understanding it is a big part of it. Any suggestions on if if someone's drawn to one of these stories, what they could do as a non-lawyer as part of the process? Is there anything they can do other than just hope for the best? <laughs> Probably. I'm not sure what a layperson could do and something like that. There's always a legislative solutions of things, and I think we could probably take a look at some of the statutes, like the innocent statute we passed in 2021, allowing prosecutors to file their own motions to vacate a conviction. Up to that time, a prosecutor could not file a motion to vacate a conviction. And those kind of statutes, I think, go a long way to writing justice, let's put it that way. Thanks to Charlie Weiss for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal 2? You're welcome. Before we go, this program series is focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. In the summer of 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a decision, Jones versus Hendricks, limiting the ability of individuals to challenge their conviction. One of the ways individuals can challenge their conviction is by filing a writ of habeas corpus. The writ of habeas corpus, also known as the Great Writ, has its roots in the Magna Carta and the imposition of limits on the power of the king. The objective of a writ of habeas corpus is to bring a party before a court where the legitimacy of a detention will be determined. Habeas corpus stands for the idea that government is not all-powerful and individuals are not to be held against their will without justification. The framers of the Constitution valued habeas corpus so much that they included in Article I, Section 9, an admonition that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, when in the cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. The prominent place given habeas corpus in the Constitution led those who believed that they were wrongly convicted to use habeas corpus as a way of having a judge re-examine their case. When prisoners filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, that petition would be considered by a court in the district where the prison was located. This created two problems. First, the court considering the habeas petition would rarely be the court that heard the case and sentenced the individual. Thus, the court making the decision about a writ of habeas corpus would not necessarily have access to all the information considered by the original court. In a system that values the significance of evidence, this was troublesome. The other problem created by this process was that courts found in the districts where the prisons were located would be inundated and overwhelmed 
by petitions for writs of habeas corpus. Congress sought to address this problem in 1948 with the passage of 28 United States Code Section 2255, which provided a new process for federal prisoners to use when seeking post-conviction relief. According to Section 2255, federal prisoners would collaterally attack their sentences by a motion to vacate in the sentencing court rather than by a petition for a writ of habeas corpus in the district of confinement. According to the Supreme Court in a previous case, the sole purpose of Section 2255 was to address the serious administrative problems created by district courts reviewing each other's proceedings without access to needed evidence and aggravated by the concentration of federal prisoners in certain judicial districts that therefore faced an inordinate number of habeas corpus actions. In this legislation, Congress created a general rule barring federal prisoners authorized to file a Section 2255 motion from using habeas corpus. However, Congress provided that prisoners could still use habeas corpus when a Section 2255 motion was inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of a prisoner's detention. This was called the saving clause because it saved the prisoner's ability to use habeas corpus. In 1996, after the bombing in Oklahoma City, Congress enacted the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. This act barred second or successive Section 2255 motions unless the second motion was based on either newly discovered evidence or a new rule of constitutional law handed down by the Supreme Court. Marcus D'Angelo Jones was convicted of two counts of unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon in 2000. He appealed and the Court of Appeals affirmed his conviction and sentence of 327 months of imprisonment. After losing his appeal, Jones filed a Section 2255 motion to vacate his sentence. The court did in fact vacate one of his concurrent sentences, but left the other in place. In 2019, after Jones had been imprisoned for almost two decades, the U.S. Supreme Court in Rehafe versus United States ruled an essential element of the crime of unlawful possession of a firearm by a felon is knowledge by the felon that he or she was legally barred from possessing a firearm. This represented a major shift in the interpretation of the statute. At Jones's trial, the prosecution had not presented this evidence of knowledge. Why? It was because at the time of Jones' trial, this was not seen as an element of the crime. 
After Rehafe, Jones made the argument that he did not possess knowledge, that he was prohibited from possessing a firearm. He claimed that at the time, he believed his record had been expunged. Thus, Jones argued, he was being held in prison for committing a crime when the law did not cover his situation. It was a compelling argument. The problem was in identifying a means by which he could present this argument to a court. This would seem to be a case in which habeas corpus might be an option. However, Section 2255 told people in Jones' situation not to use habeas corpus and instead to use 2255. The problem was that Section 2255 had been amended by the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act to prohibit a second motion to vacate unless very specific conditions were met. Jones had already presented a motion to vacate his conviction decades ago. This meant his ability to file another 2255 motion was limited. The good thing for Jones was that 2255 included a saving clause in which if 2255 was inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of a prisoner's detention, that prisoner could proceed under habeas corpus. Unfortunately for Jones, neither the trial court nor the court of appeals believed this condition was met. Jones would not be allowed to challenge his conviction. It was a situation reminiscent of Catch-22. He appealed to the United States Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court rejected Jones's argument. Writing for the six-justice majority, Clarence Thomas found Jones' contentions unpersuasive. Jones argued that while the law specified allowing a second or successive attack in the case of new evidence of innocence or the Supreme Court handing down a new rule of constitutional law, that did not mean that there were not additional reasons for allowing a prisoner to proceed. He posited that a second motion should also be allowed when the Supreme Court hands down a new rule of statutory law, which was present here. Justice Thomas stated that Section 2255's authorization of a successive collateral attack based on new rules of constitutional law implies that Congress did not authorize successive collateral attacks based on new rules of non-constitutional law. Had Congress wished to omit the word constitutional, it could have easily done so. Thus, the majority concluded that even when the Supreme Court hands down a new interpretation of a statute, that calls into question the guilt of someone serving a prison sentence, that individual will not be allowed to make that case if that person has previously challenged their conviction. 
Jones had a second argument based upon the saving clause that applied when the process was inadequate or ineffective to test his detention. He contended that because of his inability to proceed under Section 2255, this deficiency demonstrated that 2255 was inadequate or ineffective to test the legality of his detention. Given this fact, Jones argued, the saving clause was satisfied and Jones should be able to proceed under habeas corpus. Once again, the majority was not convinced by Jones's argument. Justice Thomas contended that the saving clause was much more limited than the idea presented by Jones. He wrote, Traditionally, courts have treated the saving clause as covering unusual circumstances in which it is impossible or impracticable for a prisoner to seek relief from the sentencing court. The clearest such circumstance is the sentencing court's dissolution. A motion in a court that no longer exists is obviously inadequate or ineffective for any purpose. For Thomas and the majority, the saving clause was to be used sparingly. Justice Thomas characterized Jones' arguments as an attempt to do an end run around the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Justice Thomas was going to allow no such end run, writing, Here, as is often the case, the best interpretation is the straightforward one. Section 2255 specifies the two limited conditions in which Congress has permitted federal prisoners to bring second or successive collateral attacks on their sentences. The inability of a prisoner with a statutory claim to satisfy those conditions does not mean that he can bring his claim in a habeas petition under the saving clause. It means that he cannot bring it at all. Congress has chosen finality over error correction in this case. Congress has chosen finality over error correction in this case. Whether you agree or disagree with the decision in this case, that statement should prompt careful consideration. John Adams, in representing the British soldiers charged with murder in the Boston Massacre, made the argument, it is of more importance to the community that innocence should be protected than it is that guilt should be punished. Regardless of your position on the court's decision, it is undeniable that Congress has chosen finality over error correction is starkly different from the perspective articulated by Adams. In their dissenting opinion, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan wrote, A prisoner who is actually innocent, imprisoned for conduct that Congress did not criminalize, is forever barred by Section 2255 from raising that claim 
merely because he previously sought post-conviction relief. It does not matter that an intervening decision of this court confirms his innocence. By challenging his conviction once before, he forfeited his freedom. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson wrote a 39-page dissent in which she looked to history, statutory interpretation, and constitutional theory. For Justice Jackson, a key inquiry involved the intention of the Congress that enacted Section 2255. She wrote, The enactment history of Section 2255 plainly establishes that Congress wanted to ensure that a prisoner's claim was saved in at least one additional set of circumstances where the prisoner would have been able to bring such a claim prior to the enactment of 2255, but somehow cannot bring that claim after a change to the statutory framework. As the majority has interpreted Section 2255, that is precisely the situation here. Justice Jackson's use of history shows that the very Congress that enacted 2255 wanted to protect the rights of prisoners in the position of Jones. Justice Jackson also questioned the majority on its interpretation of the law. She wrote, A longstanding rule of this court, the clear statement rule, directs that before interpreting a congressional enactment as closing the court's doors to a class of habeas petitions, the court must search for a clear indication that such was Congress's intent. This principle recognizes that Congress must speak unambiguously when it seeks to affect a result that, although constitutional, would undermine a constitutionally derived value. Justice Jackson did not believe Congress had spoken unambiguously. In fact, the majority had engaged in a negative inference based upon what Congress had not said to reach its conclusion. Jackson wrote, If the majority had applied the clear statement rule, as it should have, to determine whether 2255 precludes successive post-conviction petitions that assert statutory innocence claims— Today's interpretive task would have merely involved asking one simple question. Is there an unambiguous sign in the text of 2255 that Congress meant for 2255 to strip an incarcerated individual of any opportunity to raise a new claim of legal innocence in a motion brought in federal court. No such sign exists. Therefore, we could have and should have easily concluded that there is no statutory impediment to Jones's 2255 motion being entertained 
by a court. Justice Jackson forcefully concluded, writing, It is quite clear that the court's rulings in this area of the law reflect a general ethos that convicted prisoners should not be permitted to file 2255 motions or obtain post-conviction relief at all. But what matters is what Congress wants with respect to the operation of the statutory provisions it enacts. And as I have shown, Congress's aim in crafting 2255 was to permit convicted prisoners to file post-conviction motions asserting claims for collateral relief in a manner that also curbs abusive filings. Congress did not speak one way or the other as to what should happen if a prisoner who has previously filed a 2255 motion gets a new claim of legal innocence due to an intervening change in the law. A final point was raised by Justice Jackson about Thomas's statement that Congress has chosen finality over error correction. She wrote, So, the majority's straightforward determination that this statute does preclude a prisoner in Jones' position from filing a successive petition to assert a legal innocence claim appears to stem from the court's own views concerning finality, not the will of Congress. Jones versus Hendricks is just the latest in a string of cases involving prisoners attempting to get their case before a judge and argue that they were wrongfully convicted. There will be such cases in the future. At this point, there is a six-justice majority against these filings by prisoners. It will be interesting to see how the court rules in future years as those who state they are wrongly convicted seek relief from the court. Nothing further, Your Honor. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary in the exercise of their independent judgment.